Would you now stand in honor of God's Word? Our passage is Genesis chapter 29. In your pew Bibles, your brown pew Bibles, that's page 28. There should be one of those near you. We'd like for everybody to be able to see the passage as it's being preached. See and read God's Word together. Genesis 28, beginning at verse 15. Page 28 in your pew Bibles. I'm sorry, not 28, 29. I'm throwing you all off here. (laughs) Chapter 29 of Genesis, beginning it just before verse 15, the beginning of the chapter. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served him seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because he was in love with her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and he gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her and Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When the morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one? Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So his name was Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. By the way, whenever... I had somebody ask me one time, what do you say after you say... What does everybody seem to say at the same time after you say the word of the Lord? And I really appreciated that question. If you ever have questions about what we do, hey, why do we do this or do that? Feel free to ask those. But we say the word of the Lord and then we respond with thanks be to God as an expression 
of our receiving of his word and our gratefulness for it. So let, let's pray together as we come to his word. Father, we, this morning, we need to hear from you. We need to be comforted by you. Some of us barely made it here this morning and deeply struggling over any number of realities in our life. The fact of the matter is, this life of brokenness is so very hard. But yet you say that you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our pain and in our need. Would you come and do that this morning? Comfort us through your word. So there are many of us who are afflicted who need to be comforted. Then there's also a great number of us who are comfortable and need to be afflicted by your word, not in a way that would crush our spirit, but in a way that would awaken our hearts to you and your grace. And so I pray that you would afflict us as we see Jacob, and we see the break, brokenness in his life and in his family, that it, would, that it would awaken us as well, Lord, and that we would see Jesus and see your grace, and we would be changed. Come and work that in us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've been continuing in our story of Jacob in the Old Testament. And uh, kids, as I've said this before, I love it whenever you draw pictures. So if you want to draw a picture that corresponds to this story, I love to see those pictures. And also, just for families, a great way uh, to teach these Old Testament stories and passages to your children is to act them out whenever you get home. Now, this one might be a little bit more challenging to act out, but you can sanitize it a little bit, right? You know. Uh, But it's a great way to teach our kids the stories of the Bible is to get home, everybody gets a role and act it out. And it's really fun. So try that. See how it works. But I have a question for you kids to get us started today. Have you ever wanted something really, really bad And whenever you finally got it, you know, maybe it's a toy, maybe it's a bike, maybe it's a trip somewhere. Have you ever wanted something really, really bad, and then whenever you finally get it, you're disappointed? Does that ever happen? Okay, Gray. Play-Doh? Okay, all right. So you were excited to get Play-Doh, and then you got it, and it wasn't all that fun, huh? Yeah, so Plato is a total letdown. Great job, buddy. Thank you. Drew. He got a toy car and it was broken. So you were pumped about this toy car, but then you got it and it just it didn't work, right? Whenever I was little, I was really into G.I. Joe's. And I always had to have the latest G.I. Joe that was coming out. But you know what always happened whenever I got that latest G.I. Joe toy or whatever it was? It was just disappointing. It didn't look like the advertisement, you know, where all the cool stuff's happening with the G.I. Joe. And, you know, after about a week, it had kind of worn off and it just didn't do it for me. But I didn't always stop to think, wait a minute, I I keep wanting something and yet that's not fulfilling me. None of our children ever say that, right? But there's this dynamic in which they're always chasing after that next thing, that next toy. It's a good thing that we're not like that as adults, right? No, we are. We are. It's like the shape of our hearts, that we're always chasing after something 
to give us life. Sometimes it's toys, adult toys, or experiences, or the perfect house decoration, or the perfect body, or that next car, the next job. I mean, really, when you begin to really look at our lives, it really looks a lot like it did whenever we were five. Always chasing after that next thing that finally is going to bring fulfillment in life. And now we're in a consumeristic culture, and you know that marketers understand this dynamic more than we ever could, more than we do, in fact, because we're always being shown a new product. A new product that not, not only might be useful for you in your life, but no, that's going to change your life, right? This, I was watching football yesterday in this uh, deodorant commercial where the, the, the message from this, you know, you need this deodorant because then pretty girls are going to be chasing after you. You've seen this commercial, right? It's a fundamental aspect of human nature in that we're, we're attaching ourselves to things or people or experiences and running after them hoping that it will bring life. But the reality about it all is that it always disappoints. It never delivers on what we hope it will deliver. And rarely do we see that because we find something else to chase. That moment of disappointment is a tremendous opportunity to say, wait a minute, maybe I'm seeking life in something that can't ever deliver. That's what we see in our passage today. The main idea of the passage that really stands out to us is that the only thing that ultimately brings fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment and freedom is whenever God himself is at the center of our affections. Whenever he is our delight and he is our pursuit, he is the one that we are finding more alluring than anything that the world has to offer. That's where freedom is found. That's where life is. Is found, and that's what we see through the life of Jacob. So let's jump in to look at our story today and remembering where we've been as we've begun to follow the life of Jacob. You know, one of the realities about Jacob that you know, it's even his name, is that he's a grasper. Literally, his name means grasp at the heel. He's always grasping. He's always reaching for something. He's always trying to get a hold of something that will give him life, that will fulfill him. We saw that in the first part of the story as he's after his father's blessing. If I can get my father's blessing, then I'll be enough. Then I'll be fulfilled. Then life will have meaning for me. But it doesn't work. It disappoints. His brother wants to kill him because he had to dress up to steal his birthright. And so he's on the run. We saw last week he encounters God graciously and the wilderness. And it's a tremendous moment for Jacob. He begins to worship the Lord for the first time in his life. But as we see this week, he's far from a finished product. He's met God. He's tasted the the greater satisfaction and joy that is the Lord himself. But yet, still this dynamic in his heart of chasing after life and things is still there. You see, Jacob has got something of a vacuum in his heart an inner emptiness in which he's wanting to find some sense of meaning and love and purpose in his life, and that drives him in what he does. So as we come to our passage, we see this at work and at play in Jacob's life. We see, as he, in a little background of how we got here, he's 
He's run away to run from his brother who wants to kill him, and he finds himself at his uncle's house in a far-off land. And there's a little bit of background before this, but he meets, he meets Rachel, the, the, the daughter of Laban. He meets Rachel, and he falls in love in a moment. He's infatuated. He's head over heels. He sees the beauty of Rachel, and immediately he is fixated upon her, that, that if he can have Rachel, then all of life will come together. Then everything will have meaning. He will be fulfilled. And so he gets locked in on Rachel. Now we learn also at the same time that Leah, her older sister, had weak eyes. It didn't mean that she was nearsighted. It was a way of speaking in the ancient world of being ugly. In, in, in ancient uh, Near Eastern cultures, the eyes were a source of tremendous beauty, that sparkle, that depth. And we don't know for, for Leah, maybe she had a deformity in her eyes or whatever was the case, but she wasn't pretty. But her younger sister, Rachel, was beautiful. And we're told not only was she beautiful, but she was lovely in form, a way of the Hebrew saying she had a killer body. And as Jacob encounters her, he's done. He's infatuated. He's chasing her. And whenever Laban, his uncle, says, he's been working for him for about a month, hey, what should your wages be? Without even thinking, Jacob says, I will work for you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Now, in, in this day, if you were going to ask for a woman's hand in marriage, you would bring what's called a bride price. It was a customary reality of the day. But here, Jacob is offered something so above and beyond what would have ever been imagined. Seven years' wages? He's utterly fixated upon her and infatuated with her. And Laban begins to know in that moment, ah, so I see. So he sees an opportunity here. After the seven years are over, and we're told even as he's working all of those seven years for Rachel, that it just seemed like a day for him. Why? Because he's looking ahead to that day when Rachel will be his, and at that moment he will be utterly fulfilled in every way. All of his minuses will be plussed. All of his sorrows will fade into joy. Everything will come together in his life if he has Leah. And then finally at the end of the time, he comes to his uncle Laban, and he says to him, give me my wife, this is verse 21, give me my wife, my time is completed, I want to lie with her. Imagine going to ask for a woman's hand in marriage and saying this to the father. You see, he's so distorted by what he's fixated upon. And it's not even her as a person. There's a great contrast where uh, as a servant of Abraham goes to find Isaac a wife, He's prayerful. He's looking for character in the person. Not with Jacob. It's all about the looks. It's all about the sexual attraction for him. It's all about the physical. And he's utterly taken over, even to say in this to his uncle. So as we see this, as we see this story, this pursuit, all of this stuff, I think as, as modern people in our own day, we tend to look at this and not see, there's no shock to the story to us. It seems a little bit more normal. In, in this day and in this culture, 
This is very out of place. Almost every detail that we're seeing about Jacob and his pursuit of her is totally out of place in the ancient world. The whole concept of romantic love didn't have the status that it does in our culture today. People didn't marry in the ancient world for romantic love. That's not what brought a marriage together. Now, it wasn't that it didn't exist. It wasn't that you didn't hope that it would grow once you were married, but that's not why you married. You married for status. You married to bring certain families together. It was often arranged. It wasn't for, like in our culture, attraction and beauty and the physical. And so as we see this, as we come out of our culture and we see this, it almost warms our hearts, right? Ah, he found the one, right? How sweet. He's finally fallen in love. That's the language of our day. He's fallen in love. He finally found that person made just for him. That's the language of our culture. It it doesn't take a lot of persuasion to get you to understand that we find ourselves in a culture that is absolutely crazed with sexuality. That in our culture, romantic love is not just one aspect of life, but that it has been exalted to the level of deity. I mean, think about all of our movies, all of our songs, all of our songs are about this mysterious power of love that overcomes everything else. Every movie that we watch, we see people who, who are overcome with the power of this attraction, and whenever they find the right one, that all of life comes together, and they ride off into the sunset. This is what our culture teaches us, that this is what life is all about. It's an idol of our culture, and we're a product of it, where we begin to believe that meaning in life is associated to falling in love. That if I find that, that perfect soulmate, that's kind of how it's portrayed, that there's this one person out there who's been made perfectly for you in every way, and whenever you find them, everything will come together. Joy, life, you'll be utterly fulfilled, and then you get married and you think, I've been defrauded. This person wasn't the person I married. Well, yeah, nobody is. We change, and we're putting on our best front. But so much of our trouble in marriage is that we've bought into the idol of our culture, that if I find romantic love, if I find this person, that this other person can ultimately fulfill me in my life. They can give me meaning. They can, they can give my life purpose. I'll finally be loved. And no one can bear that weight. But it's taken over Jacob. Even in this day, he's fixated upon her. He's pursuing her. And in Laban, Jacob has met his match. You know, as we've seen, as we follow Jacob and we know his name, he's a deceiver, right? He knows how to manipulate to get what he wants. And we've already seen in the first story that we saw how he manipulates his father to get what he wants. So he's pretty sly. He's pretty sharp. But in Laban, he's met his match. And Laban knows his weak spot. So, finally the day comes. It's time for the wedding. Everyone is gathered together, and Laban brings Leah to give to Jacob for his wife. Now, initially, we're sitting there, and we're saying, wait a minute. How do you not know? How do you marry the wrong person on your wedding day? Right? It's kind of hard to imagine. Well, think about this, just cultural customs of the day. On a wedding day, a bride in the ancient world would have been heavily veiled. 
literally the whole body throughout the wedding day and the wedding night. And the wedding was surrounded by a great deal of celebration. And so as the wine begins to bring its influence over the groom and everyone else there, well, it was an easy trick. And as they go into the bridal tent, well, there's no lights in there. It's a little bit easier for this to happen than you might imagine. And Laban's the best. And so he does a little switcheroo. He gives him Leah. Jacob has no idea. And then, in the most dramatic turn of irony in the whole story, verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. The ultimate shocker. What he had done to his father has now come all the way back around to him. Remember what he had done to his father? Because of his father's blindness, he couldn't see. He manipulated and tricked him into getting what he wanted. Well, Laban has done the exact same thing to him. Jacob has been blinded. He's blinded by his infatuation. He's blinded by the veil, the night, and the wine, and he can't see. It's happened to him. So he's furious. He's angry. He goes back to Laban. What have you done? We had an agreement. And Laban's good. He knows he still has him. He's still got the hooks in him. Because he knows what Jacob can't let go of. Right? And look at his responses. Verse 26. It's not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Oh, I didn't tell you. That's not how we do it around here. In these parts, we give the older one first. You know, which is no kind of response. He's defrauded him. Right? He knows if that was the case, he should have told him on the front end. In fact... Whenever Jacob came and asked for Rachel, he didn't say yes. Did you know that in the passage? He says, well, it's kind of a vague kind of response. Better for you to have her than anybody else. He didn't say yes. He didn't enter into this formal agreement. Right? He kept his options open. He knew what he could get away with. But again, Jacob doesn't see it. Why? He's been blinded by his infatuation. Finish this bridal week, then we will give the younger one also. And so he finishes out out the bridal week, he gives him Rachel, and there's seven more years of labor. It's a tremendous picture of how the things that we get fixated on lead us into slavery. They enslave us. We begin to serve them. Now let me address one question that you might be having here. We got two wives here and one man. It's called polygamy. Is that a problem for anybody? We see that a lot in the Bible. And sometimes, you might have heard this before, we might say, wait a minute, is the Bible condoning polygamy? Is the Bible condoning multiple wives? Which I think we can know from just plain common sense. That's a bad thing, right? You might have even heard before of someone who wants to discredit the Bible. Hey, polygamy's in the Bible, Right? It teaches all this bad stuff. Well, whenever people say that to try to discredit the Bible, they don't know how to read the Bible. You think because it's in there that it's condoning it. This is not condoning it. The rest of the story shows you how broken it is. It was a cultural custom of the day that was widespread. And the Bible over and over and over will show you how utterly broken it is. So the Bible does not condone polygamy. In fact, it is flatly against it. So what is the main idea, the main point of the story? What are we to see? 
here in the life of Jacob. More than anything else, we get a window into the human condition. In other words, we get a picture of our own hearts, of how we're always chasing after life in some created thing. We're always fixated upon something, and it can be an object, it can be a relationship, it can be a person, it can be approval of people, it can be success, it can be a body, it can be our hobbies. I mean, it's just limitless, the kind of things that we get fixated upon, that we begin to chase after, that we, we promote them, you see. They're often good things, but we promote them in our heart, and we begin to look to them and chase after them for life, for meaning, for satisfaction. And here's the fundamental reality of that practice. It always disappoints. It never fulfills. It never comes through. Right? We do this in so many ways. So many realities in our hearts of things that we'll chase after. But yet, and Tim Keller says this, and it's just absolutely fantastic. When we're searching after life in these things, in the morning, it's always Leah. It's a picture of the reality that we know. In the morning, it's always Leah. Right? When you're seeing that thing, whatever it is, whatever it is, a, a our trips, our vacations, our home, our children, our, those things that we chase after, it looks like Rachel. It looks like if I get this, finally there'll be meaning. I'll, I'll be somebody. If I get that body, it's Rachel, right? I'll be accepted. I'll, I'll find fulfillment. But in the morning, it's always Leah. It doesn't fulfill it's always going to bring a sense of disillusionment in our life. And when we taste that disillusionment, when you're disappointed by the idols that you're chasing in your life, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to see, wait a minute, this is never going to be Rachel. It's always going to be Leah. The same thing happens even in Leah's life in the end of the story. And we see that she's doing the same thing that Jacob's doing, right? So Jacob's after Rachel. If he has her, then he'll have life. Well, Leah's doing the same thing. If she has the love of her husband, she will have life. She'll be fulfilled. We're told in verse 31, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now imagine being Leah. Imagine all of your life being the ugly girl. A horrible reality. Imagine your younger sister being the looker and you're always in her shadow. Imagine your father looking for an opportunity to unload you in false pretenses on some husband. You imagine the vacuum in her heart? Well, you see some of the reality of it. But what is she doing? How is she seeking after life? Well, if I have the love of my husband, it will be enough. And how does she go about trying to find that? through being the most awesome wife and mother you've ever seen. Does that sound familiar? Look at what she does. She's having children. And you even see it tragically in the names of her children and what she exclaims whenever she has another son. Verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Then, in jumping down to verse 34, second half, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. She's doing the same thing. 
She has promoted the love of her husband to a godlike status in her heart. If I get his love, if he sees me, then I'll be enough. Then I'll be fulfilled. The way that she goes about it is utterly different than Jacob. You know, he's after just the body, the experience. But she's after the traditional values. If I can have him sons, if I can raise the perfect children, if I can feed them perfectly healthy, right? Nothing not organic will ever go into their body. If I, if I, if I craft this perfect home life, it's domestic glory that she's pursuing. If I'm the perfect wife, then I will be accepted. I'll be loved. I will arrive. I just described most of our Facebook pages. Did I not? Let me show you how perfect it is in my world so that you'll love me. I just don't want to pick on the women here. What about for us as the guys? What are the things that we search after? It's experiences and toys our hobbies, our success in our work. You see, fundamentally, it's all the shape of all of our hearts. We're constantly doing this. Let me give you two real-life examples. One, a real good friend from college, and the second one, me. First one, buddy from college, a real good friend in college, wonderful guy. Love this guy, strong believer, love Jesus. But more than anything else in his life, He wanted to be married, but he had a huge problem. You know what the huge problem was? All the girls wanted him. And so you're saying, wait a minute, why is that a problem? It was a problem because he had unlimited choices, right? So this guy, I mean, he was athletic. He was fun. He was funny. He was really handsome. He was charming. He was the kind of guy that you never wanted to go on a double date with because at the end of the night, your date is gazing into his eyes. I've seen it happen many times. It happened to me a time or two. You know, this was, but, you see, what was happening is that in his heart, the one, the perfect one, he had imagined her in his mind for so long, and he had even heard it in the church, that if you are pure and if you do it right and you follow God, then finally you're going to find that one that God's crafted for you, and they're going to be perfect, and they're going to fulfill you in every way. And he had this illusion of the one, this idol in his life, and he was living for that. And whenever he actually picked a girl that might be the one, he was utterly disillusioned. He would always see, oh, this is just Leah, after he got closer. It was like a, a nose was just a little bit crooked. One, one ear was a little bit higher than the other one, or the laugh was annoying, or the hair was a little strange. I mean, he was creative in the things that he would pick out for his disappointment, and he didn't want to do this. I mean, he was, he was plagued by this and couldn't figure out, why do I keep breaking these girls' hearts? I want to be married. He's still single to this day. What was going on? You see, because he was chasing an ideal the true reality could never match up to it. As he actually got to know a real girl, well, she couldn't even stand up to the idol, to the dream. He was doing the same thing as Jacob. It wasn't working out in the same way. It doesn't always. I'll give you an example from my life in a different area. And please don't see this is only about our 
infatuation with romantic love. That's a huge one in our culture, but this plays out in so many ways. And I'll give you an example. In my own life, a common idol for me is the idol of escape. You know, I feel like if through some trip or some experience or some evening with good friends or some hunting trip or some surfing of the Internet, that I will be able to escape all of the problems that I know in my life, all of the, the just funk that I feel in my own heart, the, the boredom that I can feel at times. Escape is what I, what I long for. And in fact, I can look out into the future and I can see something coming up and I can begin to promote that and lift it up and say, I'm going to escape then and it's going to bring me comfort and peace and rest. Oh, everything at that moment is going to all come together. Of course, we never say this as we're thinking about it, but it's what's happening in our heart. You know what always happens? In the morning, it's always Leah. Every time, it's always Leah. It doesn't deliver. Right? You go on the vacation and you spend too much money and the weather's bad and somebody gets sick and the kids fight. Right? It doesn't work out. It doesn't deliver because in the morning, it's always Leah. It's the reality of all the things that we're chasing after in our life. So what about you? What are you chasing after? If you're like me, it's probably a long list. What are you chasing after in your life? Is it a spouse? Is it like, if I get married, everything will become whole in my life? For some of us, we might have bought into that, and then you got married... And you're feeling cheated right now. And you want out. Because this person is not what they were supposed to be. But you see, the whole, the whole perspective on marriage from that angle is a distorted, idolatrous one. That's not what marriage is to be. It's not about what I'm going to get from this perfect person. It's about what I'm going to give to an imperfect person. What are you chasing after? Is it that next job? perfect body, the perfect experience, the perfect house, the way that your kids are going to turn out, the kind of success that they're going to have, it's limitless. What are you chasing after? So the, the question is, once we begin to see that is, how do I get free? How do I get free of this cycle that never delivers? Well, we see it in the passage. It happens for Leah. As you go through... Each time she's having children and she's running to the Lord, it's about this is a way to get the love of my husband. You see, what's at the center is the love of her husband. That's the idol. It's on the throne. If I have this, I'll have life. But it's not working. And it's not working. And it's not working. And then you get to the fourth son and something has changed. Look at verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said... This time, I will praise the Lord. And she gave him the name Judah. She's been set free. Something happened. Something happened in Leah, and maybe it was the tasting of the emptiness over and over and over. She was wrestling with the Lord. She was using the language of the Lord, but she was using the Lord to get something else. Do you see that before? She's coming to the Lord, she's praising the Lord, but ultimately, God is a means to an end. 
Lord, you got to come through to give me a son so that I can get what I really want. You see, God was useful to her. He wasn't the gold. He wasn't the treasure. He wasn't the center. But at the end, he had become the center. Now I will worship you. You're the center of my life. You are all that I need. At some point, she's come to discover the love of my husband is not going to do it for me. But she found a better husband, which is the Lord God, who begins to love her in a way that Jacob never would. You see how it frees her from this prison and from the search? So often we go to the Lord in order to get something from God. Lord, show up in this place in my life. Give me this because that is what I'm really after in my life. So often we, we, we pray, we seek and acknowledge God, we, we do religious things in order to get something from God, and we wonder why He's not delivering. You see where we got to go? You've got to get to the point of saying, that's not what I want, I need you. It's worship. She comes to a place of worship where she is utterly free. God Himself has become her delight. One of the greatest leaders of Christianity was St. Augustine in the 400s A.D. And for, uh, Augustine had this monumental kind of phrase in his book, Confessions. I've mentioned this before. But he says this, and he's speaking to God in his confessions, and he says, You have made us for yourself, O God, and restless is the human heart until it finds its rest in you. You see, just verbalizing exactly what we see in the life of Jacob. That you have made us for you, that until we begin to see that all of our desires and all of our longings are ultimately only fulfilled in the living God. And until you come to that place and you go to Him for that, and you say, you're enough. You are my only satisfaction. Until you get to that place, your heart's going to be fundamentally restless, running from one thing to another, looking for that life. For Augustine, this wasn't a theological statement. It was deeply personal. Because Augustine, I'm just going to be frank, was a sex addict. He lived his life in pursuit of love and fulfillment, just like Jacob, in the arms of another mistress, constantly in his life. You know the only thing that changed him and liberated him? That shift. No longer... Was it the romantic love of the arms of a person? But finally, it was the arms of the Lord. He became enough. He became his ultimate satisfaction. And it freed him. It set him free. How do we get there? It's just repentance. That's what's happened for Leah. She's come to a place of repentance. Repentance, is, it starts with seeing it's empty and then releasing it and turning from it we got to see about these things. That's not going to do it. I think that it is. I know that I think that it is, but it won't. And then turning from that to the living God and saying, you are life. Or even saying, let, me, let my heart know that you're life more than any of these other things. And how we get there is through Christ. There's a, there's a clue in the passage. It's really cool. At what sun does it hit for her? Judah. Why is Judah significant? Well, as we learn throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, 
He is the line of Jesus. He's the messianic line. At the end of the book of Genesis, we learn that from Judah will come kings. In fact, the king, the seed of Abraham, will come through him. It is a clue in the passage. It's at Judah that she's finally released. See, the great far-off grandson of Judah is Jesus. Essentially, Leah becomes the mother of Jesus. You see, when we find enjoyment and delight in Him, when we see that He loves us when we're at our worst, which is not like our idols, because we're always serving them to give what they never deliver, when we see that He was willing to give His life for us, none of our idols do that. They take life and do not give. When we see that He will never leave us and never forsake us, whenever we see that His love is better than life, when you see that in your heart, it releases. It frees you from the idol. It's not enough to say this isn't working. You've got to replace it with joy and worship in Christ. 